0: Thanks, Jack. And uh, good morning, friends. It is a joy to be worshiping with all of us as we, um, again, continue and finish this series that we've been doing through 1 Peter. Um, That passage over the last four weeks, as we've journeyed through this book, our series has explored kind of wisdom and revelation from Peter's writings. And so we want to recognize that this is a book that is addressed to Christians or people of faith scattered all over the uh, the Greco-Roman world at the time. There, It's not like one of those books from Paul where it's to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, or it's directed to the church in Corinth um, for for the Corinthians, right? Those books. This is more known as a general epistle. So it's to all people of faith scattered around the world. And it begins that way. The, the first chapter tells us about how this is to people who are undergoing persecution, different places in the world, and the patterns of how you worship, where you worship, those might be disrupted a little bit compared to what you're used to if you live in the religious center. And so this is kind of the world we're being invited into in this book. Three weeks ago, uh, Anita opened up for us and started our series by inviting us to consider Peter as the character. What in his life might have prompted him to open up uh, this letter and to preach this, this letter? And so, like, as we looked at his life, Anita reminded us of key moments. One is a moment where he denies Christ three times. Just turns his back. And as that happens, there's a thread in his life where what do we do with that? How do we live with that? When you have turned your back on the, the one who gives you life. But we continued on his story. His story doesn't end there. It moves, and we see, even in the midst of that failure, Jesus invites him towards the, uh, the end of Jesus's earthly life, that, um, Peter, you're still part of my plan. You still have place with me. You still have space with me. And so we looked at his character, and we rooted that idea and his personhood as something that can feed the rest of our series. What does it look like to get up from failure? What does it look like to uh, continue to press into the life of God, even when we might have turned our back on God? The hope and the encouragement is that Jesus and God don't turn their back on Peter, he doesn't do the same with us. Starting uh, the week after, we looked at this key idea that First Peter talks about, and it's the idea of living stones. Like You are living stones. And we have this whole word picture that's sketched out that is pretty foundational for the book itself. It's that you are living stones built into a sanctuary and a holy priesthood. And so we have these contrasts, right? You have a stone, something that's firm, something that is steadfast. And then you have living, the ability to grow, the capacity for growth, something that is moving. And so how do you bring these things together? Well, in the image that's talked about, he lays out how Christ is the foundation stone, the cornerstone, the one that you would lay first on the ground to get these lines right. Christ is also the capstone, the one who sits on top. It's the finishing, the completion. And because of that weight, it keeps everything in line. It keeps everything in order. And the living stones is being caught in that middle, living on the foundation of Christ and also living with the assurance that Christ above me, Christ below me, Christ is all around me. And then last week when we were at Richmond Beach, we said, okay, so if that's our identity, if that's what Peter's calling us into, then when we look at how this actually plays out, like that sounds good, I can get on board with that, but then Peter starts getting a little more instructive, like don't repay evil or repay evil with blessing. Well, that's a little harder to do, right? Like that, again, preach well, but living that is much more difficult. Or be compassionate, you know, have your identity rooted and capped in Christ. And so hearing from the life experiences that we share as we did that in groups was a fruitful thing to do. If you haven't thought about those questions before, they're worth considering. Like When we take our faith off the page and take it into the world and we live it, what is opened up for us? What's... God calling us into, pressing us, challenging us to step and live into. So where we've been is we looked at the author, and then we looked at the vision for the book, the vision for the church. Then we looked at kind of application. How do we actually live out this identity, live out this faith? Today, we're finishing the book, and we're looking at motivation. What makes this come alive? What energizes us as people of faith? So we're ending with motivation. Let me open us up in prayer and um, bless the time that we've already been sharing. And then we'll continue on and look at our passage. God, we're grateful for the gift of this day. We're grateful for this time in our week to pause. And we're grateful to be able to reflect with each other on how you speak to us through the world. We pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word, that it would lead us to you, our living word. And we pray this with Christ by the Spirit. And everyone said, amen. So uh, my father-in-law is a, um, he's a high engagement Facebook user. (laughs) He, He, you might call him a serial sharer. He just loves that little arrow button and clicking that guy. And uh, I don't always open all the messages every time they come in, but I do open them eventually. And so this week, I was looking at a message he sent, and um, it's a great verse from Luke 4. Of course, it's got to be from the King James translation, and it's a picture of an inspirational Bible calendar. So he sends this to me. amongst other things, uh, see, I do look at them, and this verse cries out to us. It says, if thou, thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. It's the perfect kind of verse you would have in an inspirational calendar, right? It's perfect. It's a powerful message. In my tradition, actually, growing up, we we would probably camp here and have church on this verse. Like, we could go places here. We could go in. Uh, The emphasis on being devoted in worship. The emphasis in the idea that God is faithful. Let us be people of praise. To God be the glory, all glory be to Christ. Of course, the problem that we run into sometimes is even if something preaches well, sometimes we can take the passage of Scripture and misread it in such a way that it actually forms us or, or malforms us in our engagement of the text and here's what I mean. This verse is of course nestled in the temptations of Christ and Christ in the wilderness. This is actually Satan quoting the Bible to Jesus <laughs> and in the next verse Jesus says, Get behind me Satan right like uh, because sometimes messages that preach well, they fail to capture perhaps the complexity of faith. They fail to capture that God is calling us into something, through something, for the revelation of Christ. And so, you know, inspirational Bible quote, sure. Less inspirational if you know who has said it. Sometimes we do a similar kind of thing with our passage in 1 Peter 5. If we do, let, let's dive into verses uh, 6 through 7. Again, we're reading from the NIV. It goes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you now this is one of those passages on the surface it pretty much preaches itself in my own life i can remember moments where these verses have gotten me through during a particularly hard season the idea of like casting all your cares Uh, Cast all your worries on the Lord. If you've been a Christian for a while, maybe you've had a similar experience. There's verses or something like this that we've been able to hold on to, that give you life, that sustain you. God has sustained me and met me in this passage, in these verses. But in, in reading this passage, sometimes we read it in a way that Misses the radical call that God is giving to us through Peter. And the resulting formation that we experience from this passage, it sometimes sets us on a course that pivots away from what Peter is really trying to say. Remember, this last section is meant to encourage, is meant to frame out the motivation for why we are people of faith, what it looks like. And for the community of people scattered near and far, like this is a corporate address. It's been a corporate address from the very first verse. So this is where sometimes, again, our formation in reading goes astray. If we fail to remember that this is a corporate letter, we will miss the point of the passage. You see, if we want to faithfully understand the gravity of Peter's call for believers, we can't read this passage individually. For many of us in the Pacific Northwest, especially, um, you know, for people in our community, there's like credibility, there's uh, social capital in being able to, uh, to make something of yourself, Right? To, to go it alone, to be able to, uh, to strive, grind, make life happen. We know people around us, I'm sure. We might even very much so uh, carry the same motivation. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something with my life. It's going to be me. I'm going to make this happen. Which in and of itself, hear me, there are faithful ways to hear that. There are also unfaithful ways to hear that. But when we read a verse like this, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, we carry the same cultural lens into the text, which ends up meaning that when we talk about things that are particularly uh, personal, like mental health, the same value of doing it on my own sometimes runs through this passage. I need to do this by myself. I need to carry my worries, my cares. What tends to happen is that when we read this passage that way, we read this in a way that actually positions us away from our neighbors. We read this verse and it sets us apart from the body, from the community. It focuses on... Relationship with Christ, a relationship with God, health with God. But it sets us away from community. Casting all your anxiety on God seems like it is something that is just between me and God. And the shadow side of this, if we read it this way, is that if you have worries, if you have cares, if you have anxiety... The shadow side of this reading is that, now this is on you. If you have it, and you are supposed to cast it on the Lord, and you've done that, but you still have it, that's on you. That's the shadow side of a reading that does this. You have to relinquish things uh, to make or relinquish things that make you anxious. God cares for you and tells you to cast it on him. Perhaps that's a word of hope, but then if we just read it about ourselves, if you still have it, if you still have worry, the weight lands back on you. The thing is, that's not what this passage is saying at all. Here's a slide that helps us grasp the nuances of the Greek a little bit better. Notice here, This first word, cast, is a plural verb. It's to everyone. All y'all cast all of your, plural you, anxiety, singular object, singular thing. We'll unpack this a little bit more, but all of you cast your anxiety, singular, on him because he cares for all of you. The translation would be cast all y'all's anxiety on him because he cares for y'all. We'll read that again. Cast all of your, all of y'all's anxiety, singular, on him, because he cares for all of you. Are you catching the connection that's actually hidden in this passage? That's It comes across pretty clearly in the Greek. Oftentimes, the Greek writers will have all of you and then singular thing. And he's making a claim. So in... Uh, When Paul writes about Romans, and he says, like, all of you offer your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, he's making a claim about the nature of the community. It's not each of us bring our own sacrifice to God, that's worship. In that passage, he's saying, all of you offer your bodies together as one sacrifice, which means we need to be connected with each other in such a way that we're living as a sacrifice, And he's not describing a community of individual Christians. He's describing a Christian community, a group of people who are rooted in the identity of Christ. There's a difference completely, right? Subtle change, but it makes the world a difference. No, it's not each of our own experiences in this passage of worry It's not each of our own experiences of identity or uh, of anxiety. We certainly will have that. This is not to diminish in any way that we do carry this. And worry, having cares, having these things, they, they affect each of us differently. Each of us personally. But Peter... He's being instructive here. He's telling us something about the nature of Christian community. What should it look like when you are scattered all over, when there are threats on some parts of the world, but maybe not in my part? What does it look like to claim Christ as king? His language is pointing us to recognize that anxiety is not meant to be carried alone. Worry is not meant to be carried alone. What he's saying to the community of faith is, what you think is yours alone to bear is not meant to be born alone. He's saying that you might feel, or you might not feel like, um, you, you might feel like you don't have any overwhelming cares in your own life, But your neighbor does. Your community does. And that's where claiming Christ as Lord means that we help others by bearing one another's burdens. Your suffering, our suffering, moves me in such a way that even if it doesn't directly impact me, your suffering becomes my suffering. So this is the claim that Peter is making here in this passage. He's motivating people who share a common faith in the person and the purposes of Christ to reflect their faith in ways that they will uphold each other when anxiety, worry, and troublesome cares arise. Let me say this in another way. He's telling Christians that their ultimate witness to the life-changing reality of Christ is seen in how they practice witness with each other. Their most powerful witness as a community isn't the ability to articulate dogma or theology. It's not their statement of faith. It's not their organizational structure. It's not in their patterns of worship or rhythm their most powerful witness is expressed in the depth of how they are with each other, in the ways that they can frame out sacred space where people encounter God, and then also how they can become people who facilitate encounter with God. See, this kicks us back to week two. This kicks us back to 1 Peter 2, 5, that idea of living stones, right? You are being built as living stones into a spiritual house. That's a place of encounter. And you are also being built into a holy priesthood, the people who mediate encounter. You're being put into both. And place and priesthood, living stones, firm and also the capacity to grow. The capacity to open and to change. This is a key thread that Peter has taken all through the book. So, this verse says, You all should cast y'all's anxiety, singular object, on him because he cares for all of you. We can't do this if we don't see each other's pain. As something that actually affects all of us. This becomes impossible. So, a question to think about is, like, how does a close reading like this of one verse that's rooted through the thread that comes across, right? The remote, there's other things to hit in the way that this comes across. But how does a close reading of this passage uh, impact how you hear the gospel? How does it impacts the way that you think about your faith? The way that we think about faith. Since January, a key thread that we have tried to tease out in all of our series, right, is that faith is not an individual endeavor. It's not just the vertical relationship and it's not just the horizontal relationship. We've talked about how we experience the vertical through how we interact on the horizontal. We experience God through the way that I interact with my neighbor. We've also, in multiple series, in multiple ways, talked about how faith isn't transactional. It's not like if I get this thing right, then this thing will sort itself out. It's also not if I put all my eggs here, then I'm living this relationship. It's holding it in a way that says faith is not transactional. It's meant to be relational. So in our Job series, we looked at how Job, as he experiences all of this suffering, and he goes through these questions, these existential questions about suffering, God, purpose, we see that his actually lived reality at the end of the book is that his relationship to people has changed. Remember, like at the beginning of the book, it sketches out he has uh, thousands of cattle, he has servants, he has all of this. When you get to the end of the book, after he's had these uh, life altering situations, circumstances happen to him, when he names his possessions, he doesn't name servants anymore, he doesn't name slaves, and he also gives inheritance to his daughters, every single one. Before, they weren't even invited to, or they were invited to the birthday parties, but they weren't their birthday parties. You see, like, his engagement with people has changed by the end of the book. His possessions, what he sees as property versus person, has changed. His faith has moved from something transactional. He used to give sacrifices just in case just in case his, his children had sinned, to living a life now that engages people. We see a shift in him from the beginning to the end of the book. In our Mark series, you looked at the way that Christ opens up an invitation to uh, be met in the miraculous ways of God. He continues this thread over and over and over. He He ministers to those who are on the margins and wraps them in, says, no, 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 you belong to the family of God. If you'll notice in so many of the the miracles that Jesus performs, if you ever read them, notice how he talks to the one who is afflicted. Oftentimes it begins with the word daughter of Abraham, or it makes a claim of like, you are a son of Abraham. It makes a claim to say, like you've been put on the fringes, but let me first call you by your name, who you are, your family heritage. Let me wrap you in. And it's not just for you. It is important for you, but it's also so everyone else hears it. Because if you've been on the fringes, that means that they haven't seen you as their kin. So he names them. When you see the miracles of Christ, take and pay attention to how That first step oftentimes shows us that there's multiple miracles happening. Jesus will heal someone who is blind, but he will also heal the crowd of their blindness. The blindness that keeps them from being able to actually minister or take care of the person. He does this over and over and over again. Most of Jesus' miracles are not just singular events to singular people, they transform communities because he's a relational God. We then went to the Invitation to Wholeness series. Again, we looked at these ideas of what does it mean to live a whole, purposeful life? Well, it means to live it in the nature of embodying the fullness of God. And that fullness is a divine relationship. To live the life of God is innately relational. Relational. Through all the parables, we bring these ideas, this sense that God is innately relational and invites us by transforming how we think about common short stories, right? He takes that and then he subverts them and says, maybe you've been reading this like an inspirational Bible quote, pulled out a little bit. Let's let it work on you a bit. Let's see how it changes your engagement with others. Let's see how it reads you. And in this series, this idea through all of 1 Peter has continued to root us in this idea. Family of believers. In the passage Jack read for us, it starts, or it continues on, and Peter uses the language of, you are a family of believers. Like, think about this strong push for the family, for the uh, recognition that we are tied to each other by blood, by our makeup. It's striking that he uses the language in verse 8, be alert and sober-minded, or keep a clear mind, stay focused, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour we didn't read the beginning of this chapter, the, the second verse invites us to consider ourselves as shepherds of God's flock. Now he paints the devil as someone who is a lion looking to devour. Are you seeing the way that he's using imagery to say, well, what does it mean? Who steps in the way when the lion is trying to eat the, she- trying to eat the sheep? Who advocates for the sheep when the lion is on the prowl, on the hunt? It's the shepherd. I did have to do a fact check. I was thinking, are there lions in that space? And there was up to about the 1200s, the Asiatic lion, which is a certain kind of one for that thing. It's not like the MGM lion that has the big mane. Not that, but it's a different kind, right? (laughs) And as he's going through they would typically hunt in packs. And so you had to be a little bit more uh, assertive with going to different spaces and protecting your flock. As that happens, who does that? The shepherd. And so this chapter actually starts by saying, hey, be like shepherds to each other. Then it kicks down to this. In all of this passage, the nature of community is being described. Be alert and keep a sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a lion, looking to devour someone. When we think about the ways that this uh, reading ties us together through our corporate shared experiences, It makes us, as we go into a new year, consider how might we as people, as a church, live this out, live out the kind of community that's being talked about, the kind of community that's being expressed. We are looking forward this year to having avenues for us as a community to connect with each other, we want to encourage you and also encourage the, the church itself, all of us, to be connected in ways. And so that might mean that you connect with each other through time after service or time before service. That might mean, given your ability to make it to a, a Bible study or a community group or something, uh, to plug into one of these spaces. But well, we recognize that A push for us this upcoming year is going to be clear on ramps for groups and then also directed space to say, if there is something that I really care about and I want to rally people around, I want to be able to do that with my church. So if you have ideas or senses of like, I want to do a class on coffee, which we're going to have, it's going to be fun, and something to come around, right? And think about it. We want to be facilitating those kind of connections. Because our faith is not just lived on the Sunday receiving information. It's being active in the expression and living out of our faith with each other. And so this verse in this series as itself, we've talked about the tagline. It's uh, a message of hope. built for hope, a message from Peter to the church. Do you hear that hope this morning? Do you hear that we can also, we we can bear hope and bring hope into the lives of our neighbors, but we also want to receive hope in our lives, hope in the way that God invites us to be uh, living stones with each other, that we can facilitate the place and the person, that we can be all of that as we engage. I do want to um, have us reflect on this in prayer. I'll open up some space for us to sit with the weight of, what does it mean to share my life with others? That is a risky proposition, and I own that. I recognize that. It's also precisely the way that Peter is inviting us to live life. So this is risky. And this is where joining and being a part of a community is always inherent with risk. And yet our hope is that as we do that well, that we might live faithfully to the way that God has called us to live, that we might embody that faith well, So join me in prayer as we we close out this series, which has been a rich time of reflection. God, we are grateful for this time to hear a word from you that speaks to each of us individually, but also to us as a community. We pray that as we reflect on your message, on your word, that you would give us the courage to live in community. It is not easy. And yet, in your call as family of believers, in your call as people who share life together, might you inspire us to live well, To share our lives with each other. To allow ourselves to uh, bring our whole selves into your house. Might we be met by you over the weeks to come through how we share and encounter you in the lives of every person that steps through our doors. And as we do that, would you sharpen our focus? Just as Jack talked about in prayer, you tune in. May we tune in to the way that you are alive and well and living in every human being we meet in church and outside. We desire to be your people and to live faithfully. And over the year and the years to come where we grow in how we do that in reflecting you in our community. We love you, and we are grateful for the way that you speak with us and to us. We pray this with Christ, by the Spirit. And everyone said, Amen.